Good morning. Welcome to South Park Church. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. So glad you're here with us today to join us in worship, whether you're worshiping with us here in person in our modern space, or we welcome those of you downstairs in our traditional space joining us for the message, or if you're watching online today, we're one church with many ways to worship together, and we're glad that we're all here today. Uh, We are wrapping up the season of Lent, uh, which is the six-week period that leads into Easter Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week with the resurrection of Jesus. Amen to that. We've been singing some about that today. And this uh, Sunday is called Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about that this morning. And it begins what's known as Holy Week. This is the last week that Jesus was alive before being crucified and then being resurrected. And so uh, this Thursday is we're going to celebrate a special worship service in our traditional space downstairs at 7 o'clock. It's Holy Thursday. uh, And we'll celebrate uh, Jesus giving Holy Communion for the very first time. So I hope you come back and be a part of that. Then this Friday is known as Good Friday. It's the day that Jesus died. Wasn't good for him, but it was good for us because it gave us a way back to God. And then next Sunday, we'll celebrate Easter and the resurrection uh, again in both of our worship spaces and online. So it's a big week for us uh, as we think about all that Jesus went through for us. During the season of Lent, we've been kind of reflecting on our personal relationship with Jesus and been asking ourselves a question, how is it with your soul? How is it between you and God, and, and how's that going? And we've been studying uh, some, uh, some uh, words from uh, uh, Pastor Richard Rohr, in which he has a theory that in our culture, we are drowning in a sea of addiction. And he says that all of us are addicted to something, something that keeps us from living a life that is full in Jesus, something that keeps us from living the life that God wants us to live. For some of us, that's, it's alcohol. Others, it's drugs. Others, it's pornography. Uh, For some of us, it's work. It could be gossip. It could be negative thinking. For some of us, it's technology. We're addicted to our phones and our devices. All of us, beneath those surface addictions, uh, Father Rohr says, are addicted to sin, which the Bible says is missing the mark. We're not living the life that God wants us to live. And so this is not what God wants for us. He wants us to have life that is full, and life is full of joy. And And so Father Rohr says that uh, the 12-step programs that people follow to become sober when they're battling addictions to alcohol and to drugs, those 12 steps are Christian biblical principles that if we apply those steps to our own addictions, that we could find some healing from God. And so we've been looking at that over the past several weeks. And today we're going to kind of wrap some of that up. And I just want to show you, we've done 10 of the steps so far. You guys have been really great and just want to catch you up in case you missed some of these. The first step is that we admitted we were powerless over our addiction. You can plug in your addiction there. And that our lives have become unmanageable, right? Then we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We can't beat our addictions by ourselves. We need some help from God. So then our third step We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Can't do it by ourselves, right? Then we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. What's going good in my life and what's not? What's broken? What am I addicted to, right? We had some honest soul searching. Then we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We, we bore our souls to God, to someone, to ourselves, so that they could help us bear the burden that we are struggling with, right? We were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of our character, the things that we're struggling against. Then we humbly asked God to remove these shortcomings. And then we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And then last Sunday, we talked about the very hard step 
and that is that we may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And then we continue to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. So you guys are caught up to speed there. We're going to keep going with that today. We talked about something very hard last week about making amends with the people that we have hurt, especially through our addictions. Uh, and we talked some about Will Smith and Chris Rock, um, that confrontation that happened at the Academy Awards. And we, we talked a little bit about, there are a lot of different things that are tragic about that, but one of the, the main tragedies that really struck me was that in that moment, Will Smith became exactly the opposite of who he wanted to be his entire life. He grew up in a house that was full of domestic violence, and he grew up watching his father slap his mother around all the time. And he said, I never want to do that. I want to be that kind of person. And that's exactly who he became in that moment when he went up and slapped Chris Rock right in the face. And so that is a tragic moment, which he has apologized for, and he's faced consequences over, and we're not here to judge him. But I just want, to, want us to think about how we sometimes might be like Will Smith, that we become the person that we don't want to be, that there's something in our life that we just keep giving into again and again, even though we know it's not what God wants for us. It doesn't make our life better, but we seem to be trapped by that. Will Smith's not by himself. We're not by ourselves. We're going to see that in, in the Bible today. So we're going to spend a lot of time in God's Word today, directly just reading it, uh, especially a lot of stuff from the last week of Jesus' life. And today is Palm Sunday, where Jesus and his disciples are going into the city of Jerusalem for the last time in Jesus' life. Uh, they're having a big festival there. It's kind of like our 4th of July celebration, a, a liberation kind of thing, if you will. It's called Passover. It celebrates them leaving Exodus thousands of years before when they were slaves and God brought them out into the promised land. And now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and the people of Israel have heard about Jesus, and they think he might just be the Messiah, the Savior, who's come to save them, because the Roman government rules over Israel, where the Jewish people are, and they want to be liberated. And they've heard rumors that Jesus might be the one to come and do this, a political leader, a military leader, to come and, and rescue them. And they want him to be like King David was a thousand years before Jesus was born, King David was a mighty king, and he ruled Israel, and they want to have self-rule again, and they think this might just be the new King David. And so Jesus comes in Jerusalem with a lot of high expectations for who he is and what he's going to do. So let's see what happens on that Palm Sunday. It's going to be in Mark's Gospel. As the disciples and Jesus approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches, palm branches, that they had cut out in the fields. As they approached um, Jerusalem, right, those who had went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means Lord save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven, right? Jesus is here to save us. He's the one, right? He's like King David, right? So Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. 
So Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not in a big chariot, not in some kind of war kind of uh, division or anything. He's on just a small little horse, but the people still believe like he's this Messiah. And so they take off their cloaks and they put them on the road for him to ride over. They cut the branches down, some palms, and they start waving those. It's kind of like a big pep rally. And they're like, this is the guy, right? Lord, save us. Hosanna, you are here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who is the new David. And so they were super excited to welcome Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Well, we all know that Jesus wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a political leader, right? And so he's not going to, to do that. And so people are going to be disappointed in that. It'd be kind of like looking at the Ukraine right now and President Zelensky, like the people looking to him to fight against Russia, only he doesn't fight against them. He, he doesn't do anything militarily or, or politically. And so that would kind of be the reception that Jesus would get. We, we thought you were one thing, but you're something else. So... We're going to fast forward to the end of the week when Jesus now has been arrested, right? Uh, some of the religious leaders who didn't think Jesus was God, didn't think he was there to help them, thought he was a, a political rival to them, right? They've gotten him arrested and the Romans have Jesus in custody and we'll pick up the story and see what happens there, right? So we're going to be in Matthew's gospel now. Uh, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd, Right, at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate, who was the Roman ruler of the, of the day, asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Right, here's Jesus' chance. Right, the crowd can, can say, give us one of these guys to be let free. Right, they had a chance to save Jesus. For Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that the religious leaders had handed Jesus over to them. Right? While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, Jesus, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife is like, honey, let this guy go. He's innocent. Right? But the chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders of the day, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. But when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. I was going to free him, but you all chose to have him killed. Then all the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Yeah. We want him dead. May his blood be on us and our children. That's how dead we want this guy to be. So then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, which means tortured, whipped to within an inch of dying, right? And handed him over to be crucified. This is a terrible scene for those of us who love Jesus. I mean, he's, he's been arrested. Religious leaders set up all this sham so that he would be arrested and hopefully be killed. They felt he was a threat to their power. And now he has a chance to be freed. And Pilate's wife's like, you got to do this, honey, let him go. And so Pilate offers him up. And the crowd, 
stirred up by the religious leaders say, give us Barabbas, we'll take him, right, this bad guy. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Kill him, crucify him, may his blood be on us and our children. Now I want you to think about who are saying these words, right? One, the religious leaders, like these are the preachers and the pastors, right? The, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're supposed to be in love with God. They're supposed to be in tune with God. And so when Jesus, the son of God, is in the midst of them, you would think they would be super excited about that, that they would do anything for Jesus, but they do the exact opposite. They don't believe in him. They see him as a threat to their power and their authority. Instead of worshiping him, they have him be executed, right? How did that happen? Shouldn't the religious leaders be more in touch with who God is? Maybe, just maybe, they had an addiction. Maybe they were so addicted to their religion that they failed to see their God. That they loved the religion and the traditions because it gave them power and authority. And when they felt that was, was in jeopardy, they recoiled against the true God and they chose to be addicted to their practices instead. Right? The Bible doesn't say that, but... It seems like a logical thing to me. They loved their religion more than they loved God. And so it got them to do the exact opposite thing. Instead of worshiping God, they had God killed. Right? That's a kind of scary thing for those of us who follow God and we're in churches and, and we're religious and we do things. We have to be careful that our religious traditions, which are important and can be very good, right, don't get in the way of us worshiping the true God, that we, we don't worship the ways that we do things more than we worship God. I think it's a good caution for us, right? Because religion is a good thing, right? It literally means to rebind or reconnect. It's, it's to bind us or connect us to God. But if we treat it as God, then it's going to get us into a lot of trouble. So the religious leaders doing the exact opposite, really, of what they're probably trying to do. Right? And then the crowd, right? The crowd who was saying, crucify Jesus, let his blood be on us and our children, I guarantee you that some of those people who were saying those words were the same people who just a week earlier, just a few days earlier, were saying, it's Jesus, praise God, Hosanna in the highest, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? We, they were worshiping him one minute and they were condemning him to death the next. How do they do that? But don't we do that in our lives? We'll, we'll come here on Sunday and we'll worship God. We'll pray and we'll sing praises. And, and before we get home, we're cussing somebody out who cut us off in traffic, right? We're having thoughts that are not holy, right? I saw what someone so-and-so was wearing at church today, you know, things like that, right? Don't we do the same thing? We're worshiping God in one minute. We're betraying God the next minute. So it's easy for us to point fingers back at the religious leaders. It's easy to point fingers back at the crowd, right? But it's also his disciples, right? Right before this, when he was arrested, right? When he needed his best friends the most, they ran like a bunch of chickens and cowards, right? His number one disciple, Peter, right? The leader of the disciples, the one that, that Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church by foundation, the whole church on you, Peter, right? He denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. People ask him, aren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm not with Jesus, right? And Jesus predicted that would happen. And Peter said, no, Lord, no, no, no. I will go to jail for you. I will die for you. When they come for you, I'm going with you. But when they came for Jesus, he did the exact opposite of what he wanted to do. He, did, he became the exact opposite of who he wanted to be. He denied Jesus three times. So if the religious leaders, if Peter himself, if the disciples themselves, if the crowd themselves 
say one thing about God and then do the opposite. Kind of like Will Smith didn't want to be a person who abused someone else. He did the opposite, right? If all this happens, what chance do we have as as individuals who follow God? We want to do the right thing, but there's something in our life that makes us do the opposite. Do we have hope? Absolutely, we do. And that's what we're going to keep talking about today. But I think if you're like me, I see myself all over this scripture. I've been in a place of that crowd. I've been in the place of Peter. I've been in the place of those religious leaders. I wanted to follow God, do the right thing, but there's something in my life that took me off that path. What is it in your life that takes you off that path? And how can we do better about that? Well, I want to go back a little bit in the story. Right before Jesus got arrested, he went to a garden in Jerusalem. Right? It's, you can imagine these big olive trees that have been there for thousands of years. And he's going and he's praying because he knows what's coming. They're coming to arrest him. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows he's going to be crucified. And the, and the divine part of him is okay with that. But the human part of Jesus is really wrestling with this. I don't want to die in this way. And so he takes his disciples to the garden and he asks them to pray with him. It's kind of like if, if you have best friends and, and they say to you, right, I need you right now. You're like, I'm going to be there with you, right? I'll do anything for you, right? You just call on me whenever you need me, right? We know that we have those relationships. It's one of those moments for Jesus. He's like, I need my best friends more than anything right now. Guys, can you come and pray with me? Yeah, Jesus, we got your back. Let's do this and let's see what happens. So we're going to go back to the Gospels, this time in Mark chapter 14. So Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Guys, if you really mean it, I need you now, right? This is my moment. I need you to be there for me, right? Going a little farther, he fell down to the ground, and he prayed that... If it possible, the hour might not the hour might pass from him. God, I know I'm getting ready to die, getting ready to be crucified. If possible, can you do something different? Right? Let's keep going. Abba, which means daddy. Like he's daddy, right? Father. He said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Right? What he means by that is take this crucifixion, this thing that I'm getting ready to have to do. Daddy, please take this from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. I don't want to die. I don't want to go through this. But if that's your will for me, I will do that. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping, right? When he needs them the most, they cave in. They're not there for him, right? Simon, right? He said to Peter, that's another name for Peter, right? Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? You're supposed to be my friend. You're supposed to be here for me in a time of trouble. You can't even stay awake for an hour. Come on, man. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, right? They did not know what to say to him. They let Jesus down again. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, right? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man, which is another title for Jesus, is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. So Jesus looks up. His disciples have let him down. They're not helping him out, not giving him some comfort in the midst of this time. And he looks up, he sees the mob coming after him. And who's at the front of that mob? Another one of his 12 disciples, Judas, right? Sold him out, right? 
So again, the disciples want to do one thing, they do the opposite. The crowd wants to do one thing, they do the opposite, right? The religious leaders are looking for God and they do the exact opposite, they kill God, right? What do we do in the midst of this? I think Jesus shows us by his example. In the midst of Gethsemane, he says, hey, this is where I am, God. This is what I need to happen in my life, but it's not all about me, right? Not what I want, but what you want. How do we fight doing the exact opposite thing of what we want to do? We got to go to God in prayer and we have to seek God's will in our life, not what we want. Jesus is the example. If we want to fight our addictions, if we want to do the right thing, right, to have the strength to do that, we want to be in a good relationship with God, then we seek what God wants for us, not what we want for us. So what's the point? Here's the 11th step in the process. And look how much it aligns with what we just read about Jesus in Gethsemane. Right? When we're fighting an addiction, we sought prayer and meditation right, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Right? This is the 11th step in Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program. That's exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed for God's will to be done and the power to carry it out. We want to fight our addictions. We seek God's will, not our will. God, what do you want for me in this moment? Not what I want for me in this moment. Peter wanted to be safe, right? Peter wanted to be safe. The religious leaders wanted power. They didn't want what God wanted for them, right? And so this is some powerful stuff, right? So I've got another slide here that I want us to think about. Uh, it's kind of a mindset, right? So I want to contrast a calculating mind uh, with a contemplative mind, right? So calculating mind is kind of like our everyday life, right? Our operating software, the way that our minds think, right? We're, we're making calculations for the best of our own interest, right? So we're in control of our thoughts. We're in control of what we want, right? It's our decision to do things. We see life through the lens of our private needs, hurts, angers, and memories, right? When we're going about our everyday business, we're looking out for ourselves, right? Our mind is looking to take care of us. That's, that's, that's what it does, right? Our mind, now I love this last sentence from Richard Rohr, does not see things as they are, right? Highlight are, but sees things as they are. Do you see the difference? We don't see reality as it is. We see reality as we want to see it, right? We have filters, right? The way that we look at life, we try to get our advantage on things. We, we don't see reality from God's perspective. We see it from our, our perspective, right? We don't see things as they are. We see things as they are, right? So our minds looking out for ourselves, right? We're number one in that. That's our calculating mind. That's our default operating system, if you will. When we add prayer to that, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, it can change our minds from calculating into contemplative mind. We contemplate what God wants for us, right? So we, prayer helps us switch our operating system, right? The way that we operate, right? We either move from a Mac to a PC or a PC to a Mac. They're completely different operating systems here, Right, so to move from calculating mind to contemplative mind, we have to change things, and prayer is the way that we do that. Right? So we're willing for God to change us, that we see the world through God's eyes, not through our eyes. 
we're, we, have, we have a conscious contact with God, right? We're, we're talking to God. We're listening to God. We're thinking about God, prayer and meditation. We pray for the knowledge of God's will, not what's good for us, but what is good for God, right? And we have a heartfelt desire to do the will of God, right? So we're either calculating for our best interest or we're contemplating what God wants us to do with our lives, right? So that's a huge difference. So we see the disciples, we see the religious leaders, we see the crowd with calculating minds watching out for themselves, and we see Jesus with a contemplative mind where he's saying, God, what do you want me to do? And give me the strength to do that. May I desire for my life what you desire for my life, right? And so we talk to God, we listen to God, and we weigh what we hear from God by using filters, does this align with scripture? Does it align with church teaching? Does it align with my experience? Does it align with my reason? When I talk to other Christians about what I'm hearing from God, what is their reaction, right? So we want to filter that because a lot of times it's easier for us to say, I heard from God when we really didn't hear from God. We're just saying, this is what I think and I'm putting God's stamp approval on that. Have you ever done that? Right? God told me to do this. God didn't tell us to do it. That's what we want. We just put God's label over that, right? So we have to listen to God carefully. But the key here is to contemplate what does God want for our lives rather than to calculate what we want for our lives. I like this saying here by Richard Rohr, and you might want to take a picture of this, and we'll have it on, on the screens online as well. The importance of changing our mindset, right, from calculating to contemplative, right? Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. Right? So words are important. Thoughts are important. Right? Where we end up in life, it all comes back to where we're thinking in life. Are we thinking our thoughts? Are we thinking God's thoughts? Thoughts lead to words. Words lead to actions. Actions lead to habits. Habits lead to character. Character becomes what happens to us in our lives? It all starts in our thoughts. Are these God's thoughts? Are they our thoughts? Something to think about as we battle addiction and we don't want to become the person that is the opposite of who we're called to be, right? It's real life stuff. We're talking about real life stuff, right? So let's keep going. And uh, we've got some more scripture that's going to give us some hope in this. So before Jesus was arrested, uh, before he got betrayed, he was with his disciples. And basically, he tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him. And Peter's like, no way, I'm not going to do that. He's like, yes, yes way, you're, you're going to do that. Um, and so this is some hope that Jesus gives to Peter, right? Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, right? This is the key verse here. When you have turned back, you're going to betray me. But at some point in the future, then you're going to turn back to me and I will forgive you. When you turn back, then strengthen your brothers, right? Because they're going to need you as a leader, right? When you've been healed, turn back. At the end of the gospel, there's this beautiful thing that happens Jesus has been resurrected and he shows up at the beach when the disciples are out fishing and he cooks them breakfast and they come in and they have breakfast with him and he takes some time with Peter by himself once they realized who it is that's there on the beach with them 
And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I, I love you. And he says, well, feed my sheep, take care of my people. And he says again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you, then feed my sheep. And he says a third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you, then feed my sheep. And you see what's happening here is Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm him three times just as he betrayed him three times, right? He denied Jesus three times. Now he has a chance to affirm Jesus three times. It's this beautiful passage. And the point of it is that Peter's forgiven and that all is well. And Peter's set on fire for God. And he, the rest of his life, he goes out and he preaches and he risks his life and he does miracles and he, he reaches other people for Jesus. He doesn't keep it to himself. Let me tell you about this Jesus and what he did for me. Right? That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Right? So what's the point in that? This is our 12th step here, folks. We've made it. Right? Having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to, to other addicts and to practice these principles in all of our, our affairs. When God heals us of our addictions, when God heals our hearts, when God forgives us like God forgave Peter, then we can't keep that to ourselves. We've got to share this news with others. I once was chained, now I'm free. Let me tell you how I did that. Right? I was battling this addiction. God freed me from that. This is how I did that. Let me help you. Right? I was battling guilt and shame, and Jesus forgave me. And let me tell you how I did that. Right? We can't keep this good news to ourselves. It's not just something that we keep. We share this with others. Right? So if anything in this, in this message series has helped you, share that with someone. If anything in worship has, has helped you, share that with one. Right? A great thing to do next week is Easter Sunday. Right? One of the greatest things you can do is invite someone just to come here and worship Jesus, right? Because we're going to talk about the gospel of Jesus. If you don't know how to share that gospel, we're going to share that next Sunday. It'd be a great thing to do, right? Just to invite someone to come with you. People are so open to coming to church on Christmas and Easter who don't usually come to church, right? Maybe that's what your way of sharing this week is, is to invite someone to come and be a part of what we're doing to say, hey, God's doing something special here. Why don't you come and be a part of that. Right? But again, we're talking about battling addictions. Right? What are you addicted to? Right? Is it control? Is it power? Is it gossip? Is it, is it lust? Is it money? Is it shopping? Is it technology? Right? What do you keep doing over and over again to get you in trouble and keeps you from living the life that God wants you to live? Right? A life that is full. Right? A few more words about addicts from Richard Rohr that I think are just powerful. Right? This is what we've been talking about this whole series. Addiction emerges out of a lack of inner experience of intimacy with oneself, with God, with life, and with the moment. Addiction is just a cover for something that's broken inside of us. Right? We're not connecting with God. We're not connecting with other people. We're not connecting with ourselves. There's something broken inside of us, and we're trying to medicate that. We're trying to find meaning through alcohol or shopping or being on our phones or whatever it is. We're trying to feel that brokenness but it just doesn't work. Let's keep going why that doesn't work, right? You need more and more of anything that does not work. That could be the most powerful sentence that we're seeing outside of Scripture today. You need more and more of anything that doesn't work. I drink alcohol to make me feel better. It doesn't work. What do I do? I drink more alcohol. I drink more alcohol. I do drugs because I feel bad about my life. doesn't make me feel any better, but I keep doing it again and again and again. I talk smack. I talk bad about people behind their backs because it makes me feel better when I downgrade them. But really, it doesn't make me feel any better, right? But we do it again and again and again. 
What do you need more and more of that leaves you more and more empty? What do you need more and more of in your life that, need, that leaves you more and more empty? That might just be your addiction. When you get a little bit of God, it satisfies you in ways that nothing else will. Just a little bit of God satisfies you in ways that nothing else will. A little bit more here from Richard Rohr about addictions. Addicts develop a love and trust relationship with a substance or compulsion of some kind, which becomes their primary emotional relationship with life itself. This is a God who cannot save. We look to our addictions to be our gods. And those gods can't save us. They can't help us. We might feel a little bit better for a moment, but then the next day we feel worse, right? So our, the main underlying problem here theologically is, is our addictions become our God and we, we worship that and that God can't save us. And the Bible uses the word idolatry. We, we create idols, right? False gods that we worship. How do we worship them? We give them our time and we give them our attention and our resources. Let's keep going here. This is from Psalm 115. I want you to think about your addiction. I wanna think about what is your idol, what becomes your false God and see what the psalmist says about this. See if this feels right to you as a descriptor. They have mouths but cannot speak, right? In their days, they had these little statues, idols, right? Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You ever feel like a frozen statue, like you're in life, but you're not living life because you're pursuing the wrong things? That's exactly what the psalmist is saying, right? These idols, they pretend to give you life, but they can't give you life. They paralyze you. But Jesus is the one who can bring life into our lives. Jesus is the one who can do that. So what, let's remind you just one more time of what we've talked about today. We sought prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. And then having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to addicts and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So this week, I wanna invite you to consider talking about breathing underwater. These are some breathing lessons that I invite you to practically do in your life this week. Look into contemplative prayer. What does it look like to talk to God and to listen to God saying, God, what is your will for my life? Right? What does that look like? Right? Google that, go on Amazon and can you hang on, Chris? I'm not done yet, man. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. I'm, I'm talking long. <laughs> Taking my prop here, that's all right. So look into contemplative prayer, right? Google it, Amazon it, right? Talk to me, talk to Pastor Lindsay. I'm sure she'd love to do a, a, a small group on contemplative prayer. How do we seek the will of God through prayer, right? What does God want, not what I want, right? And carry the message to someone. Again, if anything in this series has spoken to you about addiction or about your relationship to God, share that with someone. Or at the very least, invite someone to Easter next Sunday. Right? We're gonna celebrate and do all kinds of great things. If there are people in your life who are broken and don't know the loving power of Jesus Christ, just ask them to come with you and we're gonna do our best to help them encounter that next week. And then maybe consider a 12-step group. 
right? If you're struggling with a specific addiction like alcohol or drugs or something like that, these groups are powerful. Even if you have someone in your life who's struggling with that, there are groups that can help you deal with that, right? And then finally, those of you who are still sticking with the companion journal, invite you to look at chapters 11 and 12. All right, Chris, man, you can take this TV away, buddy. Thank you. Let's give Chris a hand. He's a good guy. Let me just close by saying, if you've ever felt like Will Smith or Peter or Judas, the disciples, or the religious leaders in Jesus' day, or just the crowd that one minute saying, God, I love you, and the next minute we're saying, God, I hate you, and I want you to die, where you're doing exactly the opposite of what will make you happy in your life. You're doing the exact opposite of who you want to be. You're doing the exact opposite of who God wants you to be. Know that there's hope. Know that like Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was given the chance to then affirm Jesus three times. God forgives. And Jesus is here to give us strength to beat down our addictions right? and to live lives that are full that do not get hampered by those addictions. As we think about drowning in a culture of addiction, we know that we can breathe underwater because the breath of God is everywhere. We can breathe underwater because the breath of God is everywhere. All we have to do is ask for it. Ask for God's will and breathe the life-giving breath of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.